This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 32. I'm your host, Dill, and today we welcome William Whitman, who's a Grammy-winning producer, engineer, musician, and songwriter whose credits include Cindy Lauper's six times platinum She's So Unusual, Joan Osborne's three times platinum Relish, and the Outfield's two times platinum Play Deep, among others. He's also twisted the knobs for hits for Pat Benatar, Mick Jagger, The Fix, and many more. It's these songs and albums that were the soundtrack to my teenage years, so it was great hearing the stories behind them all. I met William while he was touring with Sidney Lopard as her bassist and musical director, and our conversation went as follows. A&R guy on uh, the podcast, and I know you, that's I only was. one of the things. I was an A&R weasel, as we like to call it. <laughs> For how long? For a total of a little more than five years, Okay, something like that. Um, I was three years at uh, RCA BMG and then about two at Columbia, and right right when it switched from CBS to Sony. Okay, and in, was that in the midst of you being a producer, engineer, mixer? Yeah, I, I mean, I was... The reason I took an A and got an A and R job was more to be a staff producer than just an A okay. and R guy. Um, um, but the, I could say the reason I was interested, if you're interested in that, is yeah. the reason I was interested in an A and R job was I was making all these records, some of which were pretty successful, including Cindy's record, and I made a bunch of them, uh, mostly for to be fair for CBS Records, but for a bunch of people and. Um, I'd made a bunch of records, and I felt like it was a bit like, as a producer, it's like giving birth to your child and then handing the baby over to strangers and saying, okay, now you take care of the baby. Right. You know, that I would have a strong feeling like, well, this is the single, this is the track we focused on the whole time, and then somebody else inside the record company would say, no, we think it's something else. And I felt like the opportunity to be inside the label might give me more control over the down-the-line aspect right. of what happened to my records. Turns out that was largely an illusion, <laughs> that, that being inside had its own set of issues, because now you're uh, friends and co-workers with the promotion department, so in some senses it's even more difficult to say to them, no, I think you're wrong. Right. You know, it works both ways, but it didn't turn out to be the advantage I thought it was going to be. But it was interesting to see labels from the inside. I mean, I do think that was valuable, even though frustrating. Right. Now, in that position where you, uh, like, when I think of A&R, I think they're the guys hunting you yeah, know, for the time. Were, you, were you doing as much of that as you were kind of shepherding what was already maybe there? Um, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I was not the most aggressive talent scout because it just is sort of where I was in my career at that time. I wasn't sort of hanging out and going out to the clubs every yeah. night. But I did, um, I signed the fix to RCA, for example, and uh, I did sign a couple of things. Um, I signed a really cool artist out of Memphis named Rob Junkless, who did not turn out to be a big deal that you probably don't know the name, but I did sign a couple of things. Um, it was not, I mean, it was somewhat my focus, but I was really looking more for things I could produce for the label, and that was the reason they brought me into, to, right. that, that I would sort of have a producer's um, point of view added to the A&R department. Okay. It's funny, Rob Junkless, did you yeah. say? Yeah. That's kind of where I was going with this question was whether, and, and the more I thought about it, whether you're A&R, um, which, I was, which I was originally wanting the A&R guy to ask this question, but whether you're a mixer, engineer, or producer, you can answer this question, but how many times have you seen a band 
that really had it all. They had the you know the talent, the songs, the look, and and flatlined. Yeah, it happens. I mean, um, I mean, does it happen more than not, or was it? Or well, is it just rare to have that. The more things you have right like that, I mean, if you really have the you know the the star power charisma and the songs and the arrangement and you have all that together and you're playing out and you're building an audience so you're a little less likely to die on the vine but there's always a chance of that you know the it's a fickle world you know you rely back then especially you relied on getting airplay which could be serendipitous to say the least um you know a, a, a friend of mine who also worked at columbia used to say if you know the the lay public tends to think that it's just a question of how much oomph and how much money the record company puts behind it and they can make anything they want to hit and you always hear bands that fail say well the record company didn't get behind me but the truth is what my friend said which is absolutely right is if columbia records could make every single record they put out a hit they would right you know yeah. they they're not happy to lose money on a couple of acts a year sure. and, and and these days they're much more loath to lose money in anything, which I don't think is a great thing. But, but now everything is a swing for the fence. If they can't sell millions and millions of records, they're not interested. Yeah. So, so um, on your website, it says that you're always happy to accept submissions from new artists and up and coming bands. Do yeah. you have a you know? Do you pride yourself in having that mentorship um, bone in you? I guess I don't know if it's. Yeah, I suppose it's a kind of mentorship, but I mean, I, I guess I think of more in the producing and engineering side that I've mentored people, but in terms of producing bands or, or mixing people's records, I don't, um, I don't think that only the re big record companies or the big managers with the money necessarily have a lock on what's interesting and what's talented. And, right. And, you know, I'm probably not going to work for free, but if something's really interesting and I think really has a shot, I'm more than happy to find something new that nobody else has found yet. Um, and I think also I don't want to be excluded from sort of the early beginnings of something that's really talented. You know, I don't want mm -hmm. people to feel like, oh, I couldn't call him because he's working with Cindy Lauper or whatever it is. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's there for that as well. Are you seeing, not necessarily from your website, but yeah. are you seeing, in the last couple of years, are you seeing, you know, young up-and-coming bands that are Absolutely. I just produced a record um, that I can't name names yet. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but, but he is, uh, it, it's primarily one guy, songwriter, but has a little band together and um, I think is enormously talented and I think actually has a shot, although of course you never know. Yeah. But uh, very sort of theatrical, but rocking, kind of punk rock meets queen meets um, the musical theater. So it's really a very cool thing. And um, we, we wrote sort of a little, um, I hesitate to call it that, but almost like a little mini opera, a little three and a half song piece, mm -hmm. little story that uh, hangs together. And we just made that. And now his manager will be shopping that around and we'll oh, yeah. see how he does. But yeah, I think there are certainly interesting things out there. It's much harder, I think, to make a go of it than it ever was, largely because the tech industry has made it their agenda to destroy the music business. <laughs> yeah, my issue, it just seems there's such a, I mean, the, the do-it-yourself and get it onto Spotify doesn't seem that difficult, that there's such a proliferation of, yeah. like when I go to the new music mix, it's just like, I, I need fewer bands to choose from. Yeah. There's just so many. 
I like to say the number of needles is the same, but the haystack is now enormous. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you can go on Google or you can go on Spotify, you can go on Pandora, whatever it is, and, and there are millions of things out there. But the number of super talented people is probably more or less the same as it ever was. Yeah. And, you know, there was a certain value to experienced, talented and funded gatekeepering. Yes. Um, and, you know, people like to think gatekeepering is a bad thing, and there's no question that gatekeepers missed some things, but also culled some pretty extraordinary things. And I think a lot of times now that stuff is getting lost because, as you say, there's such a deluge of, of you know, how do you sort through it? Yeah, for sure. Well, let's go back to uh, kind of where you started. Where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in England and then moved fairly young okay. and then went back and worked back and forth. But Okay, and I understand you fall into the category of the Beatles are the ones who changed your life. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm of the right age that, you know, 10 years old and, and the Beatles happened and I sort of pointed at the television and said, I want to do that. Now, I ask this to a lot of my guests. What did your parents say? Like uh, go for it or no? Sure it's certainly a not go or... for it. No, I think my mother's take was, well, you you know, couldn't you be a you know, so and so's a doctor and he plays guitar in his spare time, <laughs> but um, it it was the thing that very much grabbed me. I started playing in a band almost immediately at that time, a band that played nothing but the Beatles, but pretty soon moved on from that to um, within a couple of years, I was in a band which was not a super serious band, but was recording and writing our own material. And then it didn't take long after that before we were sort of in serious. Where did, how did you learn your instrument? Through school at the time? Or? No, um, I had taken piano lessons, but I just picked, when the Beatles happened, I pretty much picked up a guitar and taught myself and very quickly moved to bass guitar because wanted to be Paul. And, you know, <laughs> just um, just played along to records and a couple of books and pretty much taught myself. Okay. Financially back then when you were a kid, was there any hurdles to get a guitar or get a bass oh, guitar? Oh, yeah. I mean, lessons? I had horrible, in the beginning, horrible equipment. Right. You know, <laughs> but the, everybody does until you can afford better. Um, so f- fast forward a couple of years. So you're a, a, a musician trying to make a go at it. You're recording. Are you, you know, are you seeing kind of you know what how the music is made that's that starts to pique your interest yeah i think so i think i was one of those people who the soon as we got in a recording studio went wow look at this and was really interested in what was going on on the other side of the glass and and not everybody is mm-hmm. um and i was always sort of poking around looking over their shoulder and how do you do that and what's going on there and so because i was a pest and sort of managed to poke my way around in there, and it was in relatively simpler days then, um, I managed to start worming my way into fiddling around doing some of that stuff, and it wasn't too long before I was sort of recording or producing or whatever you want to call it, my own band, and then other friends would say, oh, that demo sounds really good, would you come and help us do it? And I slid kind of sideways when my band was not turning out to be the next big thing, into working more in studios and and doing it as a freelance for a long time. I'm on a lot of interesting, not-so-bad records, uncredited, because it would be like, oh, so-and-so can't make it for the day, but you right. could come in and do the guitars for us. And so I did a lot of that freelance engineering, although nobody called it that, but it was just sort of substitute work. Um, and then the first real paid job I got was because I could read 
a score, and I was pretty good cutting the tape and editing. I got a job editing classical two-track masters, okay. which was a weird job, but it was my first paying studio job. Right. And from there, I managed to sort of hop from studio to studio. And before I knew it, I was doing that full-time. Although I, I tried to keep a band alive for a long time. It was clearly on the back burner relative to my studio career at that point. When did... Um too Much Joy come to be? That's a good bit later. Um, I produced, I was just hired to produce a Too Much Joy record, and that's about 19, I want to say 1990, something like that. Okay, so yeah. pretty late. Um, and then we obviously sort of hit it off. We connected musically and I guess as people. Um, and so right after that first record, we had started making a second album, or at least poking around, putting the songs together and writing, and I was at that point writing with them a little bit, and mm -hmm. actually would come up and be an extra guitar player and play on stage with them, and then around that time, the bass player decided he didn't want to do it anymore, and they turned around and <laughs> said, well, you want to be in the band, and <laughs> yeah. so... That's what happened. Like make, make it easy on us. Don't make us yeah. go uh, audition. And, and at that point, it had been a very long time since I had toured with a band or been in a serious band like that. So it was a little bit of a culture shock, but it was appealing in a way. I mean, I found I slipped back into it and enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're, as I promised, we'd skip around. Let's, let's go. In your early recording stuff, when you're doing, you're saying the two tracks, the classical, yeah. are you, is, is this stateside or is this in no, Europe? No, that was in London, yeah. Okay. Um, when did you get a first taste of, or what was your, how, would, how did you define success back then? Did you have something that had your name on it that, you know, got played on the radio? I or? don't know. I don't think I was thinking about success as much as I was thinking about having a steady job that... Survival. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That I could be in the recording business and actually say this is what I do for a living. Right. Um, I was looking at, you know, all the records you're credited on. I don't know if you ever go to allmusic.com, but that's one of the sites that tries to, I think it's all user-generated. But Well, no, what that is is all they do is read the back of records. So oh, okay. it can be a little iffy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, for example, I know I'm on there three or four different ways. Like if you search oh, okay. if you search William Whitman, you don't get the records that are credited as Bill Whitman and then sometimes they've misspelled my name with an H in it and so those to come up as a different okay. you know, so it's a little <laughs> scatterfire there. But um, I stumbled upon well, you tell me, Michael Stanley's one I did a Michael Cabin Stanley Fever. Yep. And I only cherry picked that one because I recently spoke with Bill Simzik uh -huh. with the Eagles. Mm -hmm. and, and I knew he did a lot of Michael Stanley, but he's not on. No, he did not have the any record, part of No, that. the record that I worked on was produced by Mutt Lang, actually. But um, um, it was because I was doing a lot with um, Arista at the time uh, and my longtime on and off partner, Rick Chertoff, who was at that time in Arista, A&R Weasel. Um, but Clive Davis had signed this Michael Stanley band and, and sent it off to Wales to make a record with Mutt and then was convinced this one track wasn't what it should be and would we go in and redo a vocal and add a piano and, do, and mix it and do some send that. So that was where I got involved with that. It was okay. Clive sort of saying, let's, let's take this record and change it, which, okay. which he was wont to do on the, what he imagined was the big single on any record. So. <laughs> well, it's interesting you, you mentioned these names, you know, Mott Lang. That was actually what I was going to get at. That It was um, one of his was one relatively of his early, early yes, and nobody knew who he was. In right. fact, I think everybody did, was calling him Robert John yeah, I was going to say, did, yes, did, he, yes. did he make it to Mutt? No, I don't think he had. Um, and Clive Davis. I mean, even back then, he was probably someone, 
Uh, oh, well, yes, Clive had been the president of CBS Records and, you know, and signed Janis Joplin and all kinds of amazing yeah. stuff and now had moved on and had his own label, Arista, for a, a good number of years. But, yes, Clive was already a legend. Um, but you're working with all these, you know, mm -hmm. um, people and also you also mentioned uh, Rick. Yeah. How did you, you know, and that's a partnership you, uh, that, you know, proved very fruitful. Yeah, still how, going on. How did that uh, originate? Um that was also because the studio that I was working at at the time made a deal with Arista where um, it, was, it was purely a financial deal where I think Clive said to the studio, I will give you X lump of money in advance in exchange for a lower hourly rate, basically, prepaying for a lower rate, and then had to go to his A&R department, and his only staff producer was Rick, and said, you know, well, hey, I've got this rate at the studio now. Go see if you want to work there. And I was the most suitable, I think, because of the records I had done, more suitable for Rick than anybody else there. Mm -hmm. And so really it was, it was the luck of that deal that put us together. And the very first thing, I think, that we did together was bring in, as a kind of a trial to see if we could get on sonically and personally. He brought in a band he had signed, which were his college friends called Baby Grand. Um, and we did a day and I think liked it enough that we kept on working together. And Baby Grand, the two main guys in that band, are what years later become the Hooters. Okay. And also are the guys who played most of Cindy's first record and right. all of Joan Osborne's record. And Rob from that band wrote Time After Time with Cindy. And Eric from that band wrote One of Us for Joan Osborne. So <laughs> a long history with those guys as well. Okay. When did you guys start uh, writing together? You guys wrote music together. Am I, am I who? wrong? You and Rick. Uh, no, not so much. It's funny. I've written with all those other people around that circle, but Rick and me, not so much. Okay, because the reason I ask is when, and of course I don't have the source, but uh -huh. the internet. <laughs> the internet is never wrong. Um, when you were, it was talking about Cindy Lauper's She's So Unusual, yeah. and you guys had, all through the night, money changes everything and girls just want to have fun. You had that already. And also... Um, uh, when you were mine, but I was under the impression having that already was you had those songs written. Yeah, somewhere. but we didn't write them. Okay, those mostly Rick yet. found them. I think I might have also found Money Changes Everything. That's a sort of a, you know we were both looking at that. But um, Rick was a, is a, enormous talent is this collection of songs of spotting songs that may have been released but were not a hit mm -hmm. or were only a demo and weren't a hit, and then he would sort of squirrel them away and say, I know this can be a hit it's if funny. it's only done right. It's very much a Clive mentality, but Rick was really is really great at it, um, and uh, had found because he was very hooked into the Philly scene, uh, where the Hooters and Baby Grand also came from. But he uh, was aware of this guy Robert Hazard and the Heroes, this band which was huge in Philly at the moment, and had this song "Girls Just Want to Have Fun," um, which was very very new wavy in Hazard's version. Um, and Rick just said, you know, if a woman did this, and he just had a vision that it could right. be great. And we, we also knew Jules Shear, and had I think we had done some of his stuff, and we're demoing it, and we had All Through the Night from him, okay. and had spotted the Prince song, When You Were Mine, and we had done a bunch of demos of that, even trying different singers on it and looking for who to do it with. And then Rick had a um, semi, uh, not semi, mostly accidental meeting 
with the guy from the sister label. Rick was at Columbia at that time, and and Lenny Pizzi was the head of A&R at Epic. And as ju- it was just signing this woman out of this uh, rockabilly band that was falling apart and basically said, uh, I, you know, hey, I have chocolate and, well, I have peanut butter. And they, right. they had this accidental couple-of-hour-long confrontation meeting, and, and that's how Cindy comes into the picture. It's funny, when I look at her and her sound and her image, um, and, and I'm wondering, is, is the original Girls Just Want to Have Fun, is that out there somewhere? Can you find it? It's hard to find, but yes, it is. There was actually an RCA album uh, Robert Hazard made around the same time, maybe even slightly behind us, but I mean, he wanted to get his own record. But it was a stiff and very difficult to find, although these days on the internets, I would right. imagine everything is out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I guess my question becomes... It, it seems so indicative of who she is as a personality. Was it hard to was it hard to meet make the two work? Not, that, I mean, not hard well, to make it work, but like yep. you have a, a raw song. I'll say it's some a raw songs song. were uh, just an instant like, "Wow, listen to her sing that." Girls was a bit of a struggle because uh, first of all, coming up with the arrangement, which is mostly down to Rob and Eric, but but uh, from the the Hooters, but. Um, that sort of semi reggae meets um uh, i don't know a, a little bit of motown r and b in there and uh, you know a lot of those influences some are her saying how c- can we pull this into it and rob's very much strong on the ska reggae tip and and uh, you know coming up with something interesting as opposed to the very dated sort of new wavy thing that right. robert hazard was doing was a bit of a struggle but the bigger struggle was Cindy's initial reaction to the song was, I'm never going to do that song. <laughs> oh, my God. And, um, and I think she felt semi-rightly that it was a little sexist, but that was, you know, Rick's point of view, which is, turns out to be absolutely right, was that a woman singing it is a completely different spin than a man singing mm-hmm. it. You know, I go out every night because girls just want to have fun. Sounds completely different from from the <laughs> yeah. other side, and and it's clearly become a bit of a not only a well, a very much a feminist anthem, but just. A, I mean, Cindy likes to say these days she went to the uh, big march right after this last. Um, yeah, the, the women's march in Washington. Yes, debacle of an election, and and people were saying girls just want to have fundamental rights, and it's like that song has very much become a feminist yeah. anthem. You know, you can't say it's a sexist song anymore. But her point of view at the time was that it was coming from a very weird place that she wasn't comfortable. So it was a little bit of a of of an adventure to get. To, the, to where she was going to be comfortable with it. Yeah. You had, I mean, that was a monster hit. I think it's like up to nine million, maybe maybe it's a... Albums? Yeah. I'm not even sure, yeah. Um, was it, was that, a, it was also a million-selling single, which was pretty unusual. No pun intended. <laughs> was that your big, was that the biggest hit you had? Up to then, up yes. Up to then? Sure. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. I've, got a, I've got a list of things that intrigue me, but I don't have yeah, the, it the, was, the timeline. I think, I think it was. I mean, I had contributed little things to big albums, but, I mean, we made that whole album start to finish, and it was huge. And, you know, she's the cover of Time magazine and all that stuff. Yeah, that was an enormous jump. And that makes your phone ring off the hook? Sure. And, well, and Rick's, and, yes, <laughs> and, and to some degree Rob and Eric's and everybody, yes. Were you feeling pressure at the time to, you know, is there pressure into, like, I not... Or you start overthinking, like, now I've got to pick the next, there's know, a next little, project. There's a little bit of that, and then there's also the false impression that you get 
um, which is, well, from now on, we're just going to make it. Now that we figured it out, yeah. Yeah. every record's going to be a hit record. And, sure. and for a while, it felt like that, you know, because you get all those opportunities. Those You have access to those kind of artists that are likely to have hit records. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not, as I said, if they could make every, hit re every record a hit record, they would, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Now, did the Hooters have a s parallel path to that, time-wise? Um, the band had formed, but it was very much a little Philly. Uh, they had a little independent release, and they were playing a local club, sort of. I think they had a weekly thing at the time in a local club. And very soon after that, on the strength of having been major contributors to Cindy's record, Rick signed them to Columbia and said, well, look, these guys can obviously make a great yeah. record. And which, which they did with Nervous Night. That's right. Um, we'll jump around. You mentioned Joan Osborne. That's another uh, three-time platinum, mm -hmm. as of, I'm not sure, as of 2018. But um, w any stories coming out of that, or what do you remember from those sessions? Um, that's an amazing album. I don't need to state that, thanks, but that's one. Thanks. I, I, uh, one. Jones' record was interesting in that we made it um, in a kind of an interesting way. That rather than she didn't want to go to what you might call a proper recording studio. She wanted to do it. Um, I think she had heard that uh, um, David Lowry had made a particular Cracker record in a house, and she just got it into her that it would be cool to just sort of go off and be a little hippie commune and live in this house and make a record. And so um, with the help of my friend, longtime friend, and we'd worked in a bunch of studios together, an uh, audio guy named Jeff Daking, um, he helped us equip... Uh, the house next door to his in Katona, New York, and we okay. basically turned it into a little recording studio that we were set up with a console and monitors in the dining room, and then the band was set up mostly in the living room, and the organ was hidden in the bedroom, and the guitar amp was downstairs, and we drilled a hole through the floor to run a wire down there, and Joan was sitting, standing rather, essentially on the porch. It was enclosed on both sides, but she would sort of look in through the window into the living room and sing live with the band playing there, and we made most of the record that way. That's cool. I didn't mix it there, but we recorded the whole, almost the whole thing in that house. Paying off the name of the podcast, Rockonomics, a little bit, um, were you, you know, in taking, like we said, Cindy Leopards was a, was a smash hit. Were, was that something, and obviously you benefited greatly, and we don't have to get into detail, um, but is that something, like, is it like a movie where you have points yeah. in it? You know, so yeah. the success it of varies, that it varies scales on, up? Or? It varies on your participation, I mean, and, and your negotiating abilities. Um, obviously, Rick made the lion's share of that. Um, but, you know, because of that, my stock as a producer went up, and so within a year or two after that, I produced two outfield records that sell millions and millions of records and, you know, and have the lion's share producer on that and so yes producers get paid um somewhere depending on who you are you're generally in the three to four percent of retail okay. uh, range although that's all those numbers are now read differently now that so much of it is about streaming and about right. satellite radio sure. and weird different formulas <laughs> um but that w that was pretty much the producer formula okay um you're a smashing success. Before that, did you have much struggle early on, or did you kind of, you know, like I said before, you were, you just wanted to survive, so you get a yeah. job, you're paying rent, so there, you know, was this a steady a steady climb, and then you 
It yeah, pretty much was. It was. It was. Um, I'm lucky, I guess, but I mean, it was a slow-ish start, which is to be expected. Mm-hmm. But once it started to take off, I was sort of hopping from studio to studio and project to project, and the curve was certainly going up. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and you're mentioning too. These are some of these are Columbia artists, and that's where you were the A and R vice president. Later, producer? yeah, for RCA first. Actually, I went to RCA first because, um, as an independent producer, I had a manager who, all of a sudden, took the job to be the president of RCA, and said, "Well, would you like to come and work here?" And so, it took me a year or two to say yes, but then I did. Okay. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, the Fix. Yep. And that's one of the bands you you brought on as a. I A&R? did, I did. I signed them there and and produced them. Because um, I have you produce Calm Animals, which is right. a and little bit down the line. Yes, I think, that, two that, or three, four in. Right, they had been on another label previous to okay. that. Um, I produced two albums with them: Calm Animals and one called Ink. A little after that. Okay. Um, Calm Animals, to me, is still one of my favorite albums that I've done. Uh, I I single out Driven Out. Yeah, I, I, love I love that, that song. Time. That's yeah. one of those songs I take and I put on my all-time favorite list. And it's funny how relevant it is, is today. The lyrics of that song, it's yeah, couldn't, couldn't, should, should be out now. Um, it's so, funny that was a that was a. Um, there was no question in my mind that that was going to be the track. You know, mm-hmm. that making I like a lot of songs on that record, but I always knew sort of driven out was the hit record if there was going to be a hit record and it did turn out to be number one AOR at least so right well it's funny I was uh, this just comes out of did you being A&R and back then it was you know the midst of MTV yeah so was that part of your job too no we got to get a well it's part of your just like you know let's we got to add on a video or let's make a video for this one yes (laughs) you had to think about it but apropos of what I said before even if I had feelings about what the video should or shouldn't be there was a video department and they didn't really want to hear what I had to say (laughs) any more than I wanted to hear what they had to say so about making the record so um I once got in a uh, in a minor I thought it was humorous. They didn't. A minor struggle with the art department where I was finishing a record and they and were trying to get the cover done because you always would finish the record and then they'd say, well, the cover's not done and you'd sort of worry about missing your release date because of that. And so this is when I was in-house and, and the art department said, you know, I don't see how we can do the cover if we haven't heard the music. And I said, well, I don't see how I can mix the record if I haven't seen the cover. <laughs> they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> It's funny. It's funny to think about that again. This is like the layman. It's just in the in the process how that where does where does that come? I mean, are there times where you're sitting behind a mixing board and you, you can see that the band is looking at a proof of yeah. what their yeah if you're lucky like, if, if it's if it's handled correctly yes it's all happening to, so it's all coming to a point at the same time. Yeah. Is anybody turning to you and say hey what do you think or yeah you, know. I, you, you hope yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of the other names that I have written down you could just. Uh, you know, react, but like Bob Dylan, was that a track or was that, that was a just remix a one? No, that was a one-off a... remix. That it was a track from. It's for the first bootleg box set, okay. um, and it was a track that had been a, a, a I don't want to say rejected, but but a, an unused track from the the Lanois uh, O Mercy sessions. All right. So the label's more like. Just yeah, they're putting together this uh, box set, and, and, and I mean, Bob had to approve it, but it was not like he was all that concerned about it, I think. Um, 
Mick Jagger, you do the single Hard Woman. Yeah, that, again, that's with Rob and Eric and, uh, and Rick, yeah. It, uh, at the record plant in the same place we made Cindy's record. And, uh, okay. and that was, I thought, really interesting. It was a kind of a strange experience where his album was already out and he, yet he was remaking tracks to be singles. So sort of we made the hit single to sell the album that we had nothing to do with in a right. weird way. But, um, but I think that's a really good track. Um, you mentioned the record plant, it yeah. was, and then there, the Hit Factory. There's, I mean, all these great studios that, I mean, most of them aren't around anymore. Yeah, that's right? true. Such a sad, such a sad time, such a sad thing. Well, again, if there is not the financial investment in record making in general, there, there's clearly that's going to filter down to a lack of investment in recording studio time. That you know, people are pushed more and more to just do it themselves or right. largely themselves because. They're, there's no guarantee they're going to make money on the other side. Where were you? What were you doing when I, I think it was around 2000 when Napster and iTunes and everything kind of, that shift, you know, yeah. came to be? Were you were you just an independent producer yeah. mixer at yeah. the time? Okay. Yeah. What, and musician. What, what were I your mean, impressions yeah. of it? I thought it was thievery, and, and still do. Yeah, it's funny. I just had this conversation, I think, with the last episode, but I, I just. I, I'm so surprised it stuck because it was like it's well. You can't, if you give people, you can't give this away for free. But, but right. But the point is, once you give something to people for free, it's very <laughs> difficult to convince them that now they should pay for it. But I, I keep saying it's a bit like if I said I'm opening. Isn't that how you get someone hooked on drugs though? You give them yeah, something that's for free. The first one's free exactly. <laughs> but if I said I'm opening a fruit stand and oranges are going to be ten cents, and then I go to the farmer and I say. Well, you have to sell it to me for two cents because I'm selling it for ten cents, and it doesn't matter that it costs him ten cents to make it. I've decided I'm selling it for ten cents. That's that model. It's like Spotify's decided what they're going to pay, and they don't care what you pay to make the record, and so the price that you can pay to make the record goes down. Yeah, yeah, that's sad. Sad state of affairs. Um, Roger Waters. Yep. Would you for him, actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't I, write it down. Yeah, well, Ro- Roger was a... Um, <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess he seems to be a personality that it, maybe it's more about how was it working with him versus I thought it was you did. really interesting. Um, it was quick, but really, really interesting. The one, the one thing I'd say about that is um, I just went over and, and in his studio in his house at the time in, in, uh, outside of London, in Richmond, outside of London, um, and we just sort of put together like oh I'll play a bit of that he'll play a bit of that I, I said well go, go play bass on it which he was almost I think a little surprised at, and he pulled out from under the snooker table pulled out you know the famous black bass you've seen him with a thousand times anyway the most interesting thing about Roger is he would walk out to the mic and just start singing what seemed like almost stream of consciousness but it would Phrase perfectly, rhyme perfectly. It was it was really like a bit of a savant Interesting. thing. I mean, his lyric thing is so amazing that it was that was really fascinating. Um, who who would you like to work with that you haven't? Yeah, up until very recently, I would have said Tom Petty. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still think it would be really interesting. I mean, everybody says you too, but I still think that would be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I I think it would be on the other side, and not so much the artist side, I think it would be really interesting to make a record with Jeff Lynne. I'm a big fan of his, and I would be happy to just engineer, just to sure. sort of see what goes on there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Um, 
Let's bring us up to uh, today. Your music director also? Yeah. And bass yeah. for Cindy Lauper? Yeah. How long have you been doing that? Since about 2000. Okay, um, so we're 18 years? Yeah. We were making, we made a record back then, and she and I wrote a good amount of it together, but we were making the record, and um, I had been playing, and was still playing, I think, on and off a little bit with Too Much Joy, and so... Uh, while we're making the record, a one-off came up for her to play at the um, some sort of. Oh, actually, I do remember what it was. It was the opening of the John Lennon exhibit at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Yoko had invited a couple of people. Uh, it was uh, Matthew Sweet and Billy Preston and Cindy to play at this Rock and Roll Hall, little little ceremony at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in in Cleveland. And anyway, and so Cindy said, oh, i got to play this thing. Oh, you're playing with too much joy. Why don't you play with me? <laughs> and so it was that. And so um, I did. We put together a little band, mostly the people who we had been using while we were in the middle of making a record. And it's sort of been ever since. That since then, it's like, okay, now you're the bass guitar for her. <laughs> Did Too Much Joy uh, bring you around the world at all, or just no, states and no, Europe? No, they didn't really have a presence outside of America, really. Okay. So, yeah. so Cindy has. Yes, for sure. Okay. We've been everywhere, as they say. Yeah, it sounds, I, I looked at some of the tour dates, it, and that's pretty much true. Yeah, that's pretty much true. <laughs> and is that your... One year, I think we did five continents in one year. One year. It's pretty, it is pretty amazing. What's that like? Is it, a, it I mean... It's, Again, I think the perception is, oh, you get to do all this travel, but it's not necessarily like you get dropped off and like, oh, right, go sightsee, we'll see you on stage. You never know. I mean, you know, you can't really complain because certainly every mu- that's what every musician pretty much wants, you know. So, I mean, I've got to play every great place you can possibly want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I always keep my list of places I played that the Beatles played because they were my jumping off points. So, you know, it's once you do that, it's like... Oh, the Budokan. Oh, Red Rocks, you know. Yeah. So the Hollywood Bowl, you know. So anyway, um, you never know. I mean, it's conceivable that you get in some place and you go right to the hotel and then go to sleep and the next day you play and the next day you're gone. It, that happens. But mm-hmm. also you can be somewhere for a couple of days and really get to see places and get to see some pretty extraordinary places. It takes a little bit of effort sometimes to push yourself to get sure. up and get out and see what's <laughs> around. but. You know, what sticks out in your mind is memorable. Well, I love Japan. I mean, it's hard to hard yeah. to beat. I mean, I think we've I've she's done it more than me, but I think I've played there six times now, and and sometimes for a long time. And we we were there. Um, the most interesting, although not the most relaxing, but the most interesting one is we landed the day of the tsunami and nuclear meltdown, et cetera. Oh, in, in, in Sendai. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, Fukushima is the reactor. But, yeah, but, um, in fact, Cindy's flight was diverted to, a, um, like, an Air Force base. The airport, Narita Airport, was closed. We landed maybe eight hours, ten hours later, uh, and it was just chaos. But, but every other musical act uh, turned around and left. And, went back. and we... You know, because she was not going to give up on the Japanese people, she we stayed the whole two weeks getting irradiated. But, but uh, <laughs> have you but, been checked? Play, yeah, exactly. But play, but playing, that was pretty memorable. But Japan is just such an incredible place. I yeah. mean, and you know, Australia is great. I mean, it's also. I've had the opportunity to go to Tokyo, and it, it's like yeah. right out of Blade Runner. It's like yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's like it just seems like New York City for miles and miles and miles. Yes, New York City. It's also huge. It's also huge. Yeah, forty. Yeah. Um, 
so I usually I end, I end each episode with the same five questions. Before I get to those questions, uh, you mentioned you know how much Beatles fan you are and yeah. the venues. Yeah. Uh, have you been? Have you had a chance to work with a- any of the Beatles? No, I've met them all, but I I have never managed to work with them. Yeah, actually, to come back to your other question, I wouldn't say no to Paul McCartney. Obviously, that would right. be you know it's it seems unlikely, but that would be pretty great. Um, in what, I, in I, what setting are you meeting them? Well, um, some usually in a recording studio, or I, I mean, you cross paths places. I, I did a, a good amount of work at Air. In London, which is George Martin's, was mm-hmm. George Martin's studio, still is there. George is not, but um, and would bump into Paul there and occasionally Ringo there too. But and w- what do you say when you get to uh, extend your hand and sh- and shake theirs? Um, I try not. <laughs> I, mean, that, I feel like that's pressure. It's yeah, like you just got to play it cool. They're about the only ones. It's impossible to not be starstruck, you know. But yeah, I, you don't want to be. Especially in a professional <laughs> setting, you don't want to be the yeah, oh my god, I'm such a big yeah, fan yeah. guy. Um, yeah, but I really like that song. Uh, what's it? Uh, How yeah. to go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the first time, I, the first time I actually bumped into Paul, um, the at the old air in Oxford Circus, the lounge and the bathrooms were upstairs down the. So I'm working in Studio Three, and it's like oh, I've just got to go to the loo. I'll be back in ten minutes. And walk down the hall, walk upstairs, and there's a party going on, and there's Paul standing with George right in front of George Martin, right in front of the pathway to the loo, and, and all I could do is go, oh, "Excuse me," and as I slipped by, Paul said, "Think thin," <laughs> trying to slip, trying to slip by him. That's awesome. That's, yeah, you know, that, that, that was that, the extent of my first conversation. But it extends the legend of him, yeah. <laughs> a witty guy. Um, okay, final five. Uh, first question is: Your house is on fire. Uh, what do you go back to save that's uh, kind of music memento or oh, so not my cats <laughs> cats will make it out yeah um, hmm music memento I don't know uh, I'd probably save my Rickenbacker 12 string guitar okay very nice um, question two is if Rockonomics was able to give you a check for a million dollars to then give to one charity which one charity would you support uh, Physicians Without Borders all right that's a good one. I think, I think that might be my answer, too. Uh, question three, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Huh. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll set aside if there were such a thing. Uh, my walk-up music, I don't know. Because it would have to be something appropriate to walk up to, right? Uh, yeah, but it's, uh, you know, you're, you're, my impression is you're, you're already in pretty much, so you can, you know, you can have free reign to... Play what you want. Okay, I might. I might say. No one's going to get offended and turn you too away. Too much. Yeah. <laughs> I might say if I fell. Who's that by? The Beatles. Okay. Good one. Uh, flip side of that is uh, what's stuck on repeat in your hell. Yeah. Anything by Steely Dan. Really? Yes. It's funny. If I if I'm poisoned <laughs> and need to induce vomiting, <laughs> that will do it. I don't think I'll get that answer again. But that's that's. I'm, I'm, I like Steely Dan, but I can understand. Uh, I think it took a while for me to, my palate to, to take them in, but I like them now. Uh, last question, um, and you're, I, I love answer, asking this question because you're privy to so much, but what, what's your best uh, live concert experience witnessing as a fan? Oh, hmm. 
And maybe not at a concert. Like you've seen people, you, you, you've recorded people, yeah, you've had very private that's moments. A, yeah, that's a very different kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a tough one. Might be, hmm. I don't know. I'm so much on the other side of that. You know what I mean? That it's hard for me to be wowed by a... It, it always seems like a, a more behind-the-scenes kind of experience to me, even when I'm in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Okay. I, I, might be, I might be stuck on that one, yeah. <laughs> I allow passes. Um, do you check into hotels under Nigel Molesworth? Yeah, <laughs> not often. <laughs> Okay. I used to ju- I used to do uh, Pablo Restobar. <laughs> but um, all right, William, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's a pleasure meeting you. Good to meet you. Thanks so much. <laughs> all right, thank you, William Whitman. Pleasure to talk to someone I'd like to have another four hours with and pour over every last detail of those recordings we touched upon. You can catch William on tour with Cindy Lauper supporting Rod Stewart through the beginning of September. As for the usual housekeeping, if you like the show, we'd like to hear from you. So reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or go right to the front of the line and email us at dill at rockonomicspodcast.com. We'll be back next week with a young guitarist who wanted to be a rock star since she was five years old and turned pro at 13. So join us to find out who that might be. All right. Episode 32 is done raging against the dying of the light. Good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.